Stephanie McNeil, she's Chantal Fallins, and you are watching AM to DM. Happy Thursday. So good to see you, Chantal. Me too. Good to be back host hosting with you. I know, I know. Two women hosting always puts a smile on my face, and I just love hosting with you. And we're going to be here Friday tomorrow, too, so yes. it's going to be great. Yes, it's going to be great. And I want to start with some really great female empowerment and some women who inspired me last night. Uh, Marissa Cabos tweeted, the survivors of Dr. Larry Nasser's sexual abuse take the stage at the ESPY Awards to accept the Arthur Ashe Courage Award. They fill a stage, and that's not all of them. I'm, yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up. This was such a powerful moment, and it kind of happened late last night for those of us on the East Coast. So I would encourage everyone to go online on Twitter or Facebook and watch Allie Raisman's beautiful, empowering acceptance speech. It really, really was an amazing movement. And just this whole, the whole saga has been heartbreaking, but also very inspiring, yeah, I think. So profound. It's such an important clip to watch. I encourage everyone to watch it as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's move on to this tweet from Benji Sarlin of NBC News. So apparently Mark Zuckerberg is under the impression there's some good faith debate going on over whether the Holocaust happened. Hmm. <laughs> yes, you heard that right. During a discussion with Recode yesterday, Zuck said conspiracy theorists should be allowed to stay on Facebook, saying their views were bad, but they are not intentionally getting it wrong. BuzzFeed News tech reporter Nicole Wynn is up real early to discuss this with us. Good morning, Nicole. Hi. Now, can you give us some context as to how this came up with Zuck? Facebook has had issues with uh, conspiracy theories and, and content related to that since at least 2009. And uh, back then, it, it was criticized for hosting anti-Semitic Facebook groups. And Facebook, uh, a, Facebook, a Facebook spokesperson said then largely what Mark Zuckerberg is saying now, which is that they find the content deeply offensive, but that um, it's not Facebook's role to remove it. And what's different about what Zuckerberg is saying now is that um, it's Facebook's role to minimize the presence of that kind of content in the news feed, but not, not to remove it. And all of this came about because earlier this week, um, Facebook hosted this event where um, the, uh, the presence of Alex Jones's website InfoWars on Facebook um, caused some concern. Uh, InfoWars is known for peddling conspiracy theories such as um, the that Sandy Hook didn't happen. And um, people were outraged that uh, Facebook continued to host that kind of content on its site. Yeah, for sure. And he kind of walked it back slash apologized pretty immediately, right? Yeah, he said, um, I personally find Holocaust denial deeply offensive. Um, but uh, our goal with fake news is not to prevent anyone from saying something untrue, but to stop fake news and misinformation from spreading across our services. So he, he didn't actually walk back his statement, but he just emphasized that he finds the Holocaust personally offensive, Holocaust denial personally offensive. Wow. I think we all do. <laughs> Same, yeah. So, Nicole, what has the backlash been since this has come out? On the one hand, I think people um, are upset that it seems like Facebook is creating a safe space for for um, racists and people with these outlandish conspiracy theories. Um, but on the other hand, people think that Facebook shouldn't be policing the truth and shouldn't be policing the news, and um, that just minimizing its presence on the news feed is the right thing for uh, what should be a neutral platform. Yeah, our own Charlie Warzel brought up a good point in this tweet. 
I actually get Facebook's argument about not wanting to police news because it doesn't want to, because it doesn't think it adequately can. But it's pretty stunning to jump from that straight to a philosophical argument that truth slash reality is only what you believe. So why do you think Facebook can't find that middle ground in how it handles fake news? I think it's really tough. Um, in the U.S., there are Holocaust deniers and, and people like Alex Jones and um, abroad in places like India and Myanmar, misinformation causes violence. And in, in cases like that, Facebook actually has removed that content. Um, and I think that it's uh, they're, they're taking it now on a case-by-case -case basis because they're under the spotlight and realize that um, this kind of public scrutiny means that they have to be more careful about the kind of content they remove and, and whether or not they're uh, infringing on people's freedom of speech rights. For sure. Well, it's definitely something I noticed people were still talking about this morning, almost 24 hours later. So we'll definitely have to keep an eye on it. Thank you so much, Nicole, for getting us up early all the way from San Francisco. Well, thanks. thanks. Well, the YouTube couple charged with child neglect are back in the news because they're still making prank videos with their kids. Joining us to talk about this story is BuzzFeed News reporter Tasneem Nashrula. Good morning, Tasneem. Hi, guys. So to start, how is this couple even able to continue making prank videos while they're under probation for child neglect? Okay, so at the end of uh, last year, they were sentenced to five years probation because uh, each of them were charged with two counts of child neglect. Now, um, they also lost custody of two of their youngest children, Cody and Emma. Um, now, under the terms of their probation, they were not allowed to make YouTube videos with only Cody and Emma. The terms of the probation did not cover their other three children, um, Jake, Ryan, and Alex. Because uh, during the investigation, all five children were put through uh, psychological evaluations, which found that only Cody and Emma suffered a, quote, mental injury from the videos, but not the other three children. Um, in fact, when I spoke to their lawyer um, after their sentencing last year, he told me that it was definitely a possibility that this couple would continue to make videos with their three other children, um, just not in the same fashion as before. So that's why um, they've been making videos with their three other children who have not, who are not covered under the terms of the probation. Right, well, after pressure from the public, YouTube said they removed all of the family's channels. It was after your story came out yesterday. So uh, do you think the couple could face new charges? Maybe that would apply to those other three kids? Um, so they haven't, technically they haven't violated um, their terms of the probation. I did reach out to the Frederick County State's Attorney's Office yesterday to ask them if they were aware that the, the couple is still making videos uh, with their three other children, but I haven't heard back from them. I will also point out that, uh, aside from the fact that they haven't violated their probation, um, a lot of people pointed out that these videos were not as bad as the other ones. Um, they, 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 they were still embarrassing their kids and the kids were freaking out in the videos, but they weren't as um, explicitly bordering on, you know, verbal abuse as the previous video. So um, once I hear back from the state's attorney's office, we'll know. But right now, um, they ha they're not facing any charges. Gotcha. So, Tasneem, we saw that YouTube deleted the accounts. Can the couple recreate a new account, just create, create new accounts, and will they continue to get banned? Um, that's a good question. Um, so YouTube said that they had removed all channels associated with this family 
and when you go when you click on it it says youtube has terminated this account um now according to youtube's policy um they had previous strikes against them and if uh, uh and if uh, if an account is terminated uh youtube may uh block their access to creating another channel now youtube in their statement to me they did not specify whether they've blocked their access to creating another channel but i have reached out to youtube about that yeah, and around the time that this first story came out, there was kind of this wave of bad press against YouTube with all these other creators um, getting deleted from the platform and YouTube. It kind of seemed like they were going to try and do something to stop this kind of material from being created on their platform. Have they done anything or do you think it's just a matter of keep playing whack-a-mole with these things when they come up? Right. So, well, um, as you said, um, at around the same time that this couple was charged, YouTube was facing a lot of scrutiny about these verified accounts with uh, millions of views posting really problematic videos with children. And once that was brought to YouTube's attention, they said that we're going to crack down on this. Uh, you know, we don't tolerate uh, any anything that uh, puts a child in danger. And they did uh, terminate a lot of accounts, removed a lot of videos um, associated with this kind of problematic content featuring children. But um, the Martin's new channel, uh, the couple's new channel, was up and running until yesterday. And it was only after other YouTubers uh, pointed out and we reached out to YouTube about this is when they got back to me after we published the story saying, OK, now we've removed all channels because it's come to our attention that like, you know, he has previous strikes against him. Wow. Well, we will definitely continue to follow this story. Thanks for joining us, Tasneem. Thank you. Stick around. Fire Tweets is up next. Welcome back. We've gotten some good feedback from one of our loyal viewers. Cindy Martinez said, girls, 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 two days in a row. Okay. Thank you. Yes, we're here. Girls, 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 it's us. It is here us. Here we are, two days in a row. We're here. Uh, our EP, Patrick, also just told me, which I didn't even think about, but it's so cool, that the writer's room this morning, he was the only man in there. We are dominating, okay? I know, I know. Like, like women, like who run this, like I always say. It's us, it's amazing. and Sadia. Mm -hmm. We're here, we're, here. Hey, we're back. Okay, you ready? Awesome, we're ready, fire our tweets. I love it. Patrice J. Williams, I'm ready whenever you are. Universal black girl language for I'm ready to leave. Yes, seriously. Seriously, for real. I, okay. think, I think I tell my husband that like every single party I'm ever yeah, going to. Yeah. <laughs> also, who's going to be there? When can we leave? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, I'm going to try and match your enthusiasm. Alice Wilder, if you're currently flirting with one of my friends, please know I have seen every screenshot and have, am talking her out of it. That is so true. So real. I actually, back in the day, I was well known among my friends for being a super social media sleuth. Really? Yeah, I actually recently found a guy my friend met at a party with just his first name. Are you serious? In 2018? And his occupation, but I didn't know his company. Wow. So you watch are out, everyone. Pushing the boundaries. I know. <laughs> LinkedIn. 
Gotcha. <laughs> well, we want to hear from you. What's the craziest dating-related text exchange you've ever be been involved with? Tweet us using the hashtag AMCDM. Okay, Chantal, you're up. Ready? Jason Rosenberg. Frank Ocean's voice is going to be so pure at age 80 due to the amount of times he does not go on tour. <laughs> I felt this in my soul because yeah. I have been waiting, waiting, waiting. I mean, Frank came out with projects, of course, after waiting for a long time, but that anticipation of waiting. Beyonce does that. Who else does that? Like, so many of my favorite artists do that. I know, and now I feel like everyone's just doing the, like, surprise release, too. Yes. So it's like you can't, you just kind of are, like, waiting in limbo forever. Yeah. And giving us a heart attack in the process. Exactly. I don't appreciate it. Exactly. It's not cool. No. All right. Alex Murphy ordered a black iced coffee at McDonald's and when I got to the window, the employee asked, you just wanted it raw, right? Oh. That like reads very sexual. It really does. <laughs> I would have been like, excuse. If someone told me that in the morning, I think I'd be like, okay. Yeah, I would have grabbed it like, <laughs> good day to you. Like, okay. Yeah, I think that guy uh, needs to go home and take a nap. Yeah, take a nap, please do. <laughs> All right, next up. Rax King, me critiquing chefs on TV. I can't believe this stupid asshole forgot to declaze his pan before adding his braising liquid, me preparing food at home. This is my beans and my rice. I like it because the beans has a beans flavor and the rice has a rice flavor. You know mm. what, straight to the point. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's supposed you know. to be. We like our bread, you know, as bread and yeah. peanut butters. Exactly. Peanut. Yeah, you know, I try, but I'm never gonna be Contessa, so yeah, I try. Yeah. yeah, I'll just watch her do it. All right, you ready for the tweet of the day? I'm ready. Ooh, amazing. Wanda Maximoff, my 13-year-old daughter, just asked, what if Let the Bodies Hit the Floor and It's Raining Men are about the same event but from different perspectives? That is hilarious, Wanda, and I don't know if you're watching, but my big question is, is Let the Bodies Hit the Floor something that like has lived on in popular culture to the extent that like children know it as an iconic song? A law, it's raining men, because that's kind of scary. Yeah, there's so many layers there. Yeah, like, is that something that's like, you know, like, everyone knows the Celebrate song, everyone knows Let the Bodies Hit the Floor. Yeah. Also, what are you going through, sis? Like, talk to us. Like, tweet us. What, what, what's it, it I mean, yeah, is she just, like, listening to that on repeat, <laughs> like, driving with her kid? That just sounds, that just sounds exciting. Okay, up next, it's kind of a double date. Ooh, Isaac and Saeed sit down with Jim and Jeannie Gaffigan. Stay tuned. Oh, guys, we are already giggling. We are here with Jim and Jeannie Gaffigan, co-writers of the new comedy special Noble Ape, which is in theaters and streaming now through the Comedy Dynamics Network. Hey, y'all. Hi. It's great to be here. <laughs> Thanks on, for having uh, us. Am and Dim. Uh, <laughs> we've been fans of, I mean, Am and Ma. A lot of people don't realize Am and Dim. <laughs> Like, you guys had this other show before. Oh, tell us Am about it. Am and Dim. Well, that was, it, was, it, was, it was Am from Dim, <laughs> which was different. And now they're like, you know, we want to do something on BuzzFeed, but we, 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 we kind of like want to build off of that, so it was Am to Dim. Let's talk about your show for a moment, <laughs> all right? If you'll allow us to. Okay. Uh, it opens with, Jeannie, you've been diagnosed with a brain tumor. It's April 2017. Uh, let's take a look at a clip. I don't know if you know, in April, it was discovered my wife had a brain tumor. I'm not even making this up. It was removed. She's great. Everything's good. Thank you. Thank you. 
didn't remove it. I, I was in the other room soiling myself, but the tumor is gone. Congratulations, <laughs> the tumor Congratulations. is gone. But, but, but what allowed you, when, did you, when did you guys decide as a couple that you were ready to tell this story? I, yeah. I think that when we were, when I got home, the day we got home uh -huh. from the hospital, um, my, I was still in pretty bad shape, uh -huh. but I was out of the hospital. And there was something very cathartic about leaving the hospital. Okay. And what happened was is my kids, who I hadn't seen, because they weren't allowed to come to the ICU, came into the room with their little like doctor's kit and started doing like, um, you know, it was so sweet. And Jim took a picture and posted it. And that was the first kind of public announcement that, because we just kind of dealt with uh, the crisis personally. And we didn't even think about, you know, going public or we didn't really think about anything else other than just surviving. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then once, that happened, we realized the outpouring of support and really the connections we made with, you'd be surprised at how many humans are going through, whether it's a cousin, an uncle, a mother, a father, someone is being touched by a medical crisis at all times. And mm -hmm. it's a universal human experience. Is that where the idea for the How We Care campaign kind of came from? Just hearing people share their own experiences? Well, you know, we were uh, obviously the point of view of the Noble Ape special is from a caregiver's point of view, but we were approached separately by Tylenol uh, that they were going to do this program, which kind of um, uh, gave some credit to caregivers and kind of acknowledgement and they have a program where you can get like cards and you know to give them uber or handy kind of help around the house thing and so we were approached and we were kind of on board the idea anyway but Tylenol was doing it and so we were like yeah let's do it. It was just really a parallel thing happening simultaneously and we were going through this crisis and we kind of got through it and I think one of the first things that I thought um, of when I got diagnosed was has anyone ever been through this and lived to tell about it? Like that's the only thing I wanted to know. Did anyone ever have something like this? Mm -hmm. So once I got through it, it was just clear. I need to be able to tell people you're going to hit really hard things in your life. And then you have to share that it's going to be okay. That it's going to be okay. And there's going to be yeah. a support network there for you. And the support yeah. network that Jim provided with me from um, my perspective, being the mother of five and um, six, if you count Jim, because he was pretty much my sixth child. Um, Soiling himself in the other room. I had no idea what was going to happen because Jim really didn't, you know, have that role in our house. And he came through like a champion and took care of me in ways that... You know, we, it was a role reversal because yeah. I couldn't move. And Jim, Jim, what did yeah. that feel like? What did that feel like to have to step up like that? To step up like a caretaker, um, it, you know, it's a little scary because, you, you, you know, I figured I'm not going to be great at it, but I'm going to do my best. But it, it is also a privilege to do it for someone that you love. Mm. I do want to ask, you're in the hospital, though, and I've seen the special. You then turn this incredibly traumatic event yeah. into something wildly hilarious. Oh, well, so, so what was it like mining a hospital for that material? Like what? Uh, well, because you, you write on, you write this, you know, what happened is, is that we have 
every stage of our lives together have just based our comedy on what is happening. Mm -hmm. So we we write what we know. Mm -hmm. So before we had kids, we didn't write about having kids. Once we had kids, we wrote about having mm -hmm. kids. So it was just kind of the natural progression of dealing with uh, life mm -hmm. and saying, it was it's like a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. It's like how we see this thing and finding the humor in it as a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that helps other people too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's definitely uh, the challenge. I mean, I, I've been doing stand-up and we've been working together for so long that you can make any topic funny if you have a strong point of view on it and uh, you're respectful and authentic on it. And so, the, you know, obviously Jeannie, the deciding factor was like, all right, are we gonna do some of these jokes? And she was all on board. And then there was a period where I was like, I don't know if people are gonna be, because many of the people in the audience knew what Jeannie was going through, but I think they knew that I wouldn't joke around about it if she was still in peril. Mm -hmm. So it was done in a respectful way, and they know how important my wife and my family are. So the the kind of like the, the the gallows humor works because they know in the end I would there's a happy ending. I would never do anything but support my family. Yeah. Unless I, I, they did something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> always Touché. good to get a good Touché. disclaimer. Yeah, right always there. good to get Put a good disclaimer. Uh, Unless something better came along. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean so I, I've been talking to Isaac and everyone here obsessively about Hannah Gatsby's special yeah. Nanette and and um, and the way she examines kind of our personal experiences, yeah. our, our traumatic Difficult experiences, and then what you know, how we get that to the stage, right? And yeah. and 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 the challenges. And so I was just curious with this, you know, though you obviously you know have a lot of experience writing about you know your lives as they are happening yes. in real time. I was just wondering, did any unique challenges kind of present themselves as you were trying to tell this particular story? I think as a comedian, there's uh, there's times when you can figure out how to write certain jokes or tell certain stories. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's usually not immediately, I mean typically what happens is something really annoys you or something horrible happens mm -hmm. and then you find the humor in it. Mm -hmm. You know, in sharing the story with a friend, uh, you know, maybe at a cocktail party or something like that. Like I go to cocktail party. <laughs> and so, but you share that story. Um, but it's over time, and it's, it's some of it is the, the, the shared experience. Maybe it's not the exact experience. Like in Noble Ape, I talk about performing in front of the Pope. But everyone, so telling that story, I think on a couple podcasts, really turned that into a joke. Mm. Because it, it was something that was so larger than life. And so like Jeannie's experience, after 25 years of doing stand-up, Something like uh, Jeannie, uh, Jeannie, it is Jeannie, right? <laughs> Jeannie, <laughs> Jeannie coming from this brain tumor is, you know, it's, there, there's jokes in that. Mm -hmm. And everyone spends so much time in hospitals or dealing with a loved one or a friend that has dealt with a life-threatening or loss that it's familiar territory, so it's universal. Mm -hmm. And so then you add some personal and you kind of make some ob common observations, you know, about, say, lighting in a hospital or, or just, the, you know, like the fact that people that work in hospitals are truly exceptional people. And then I add humor and say, 
it makes them suspicious. You know what I mean? It's like really <laughs> nurses are the most fantastic people, but I'm kind of like in my special, I'm kind of like, they're weirdos. <laughs> but of course they're not. So it's. Why do you want to help people this much? <laughs> yeah. Yes, right. Jeannie, was there, I mean, helping write this, but also just watching it. Was there any, for both of you really, any huge cathartic moments? Did it feel like, oh, maybe this is now, this chapter can close as you watch that on the screen? Um, I don't think, I think that um, there's no way that we could ever go back to what we were before. Like, and that's in my life, in my comedy, whatever. This experience really just changed everything for me. It just gave me, I can't really articulate it in like one segment, mm -hmm. but um, it really opened up our uh, perspective to face our mortality and then come out on the other side like victorious, mm, I yeah. think. And, um, you know, just being challenged with that, like, uh, you know, something that would make you fight or flight and right. choosing to fight mm. and coming out on the other side and being like, you know, right, like we filmed that comedy special like three months after I got out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot of writing. Yeah. But there was just so much that it opened up. Yeah. And um, true, the, when they first said you have a tumor that's the size of a pear, that's um, you know probably going to kill you if we don't take it out, it wasn't funny. Mm -hmm. But once we were on the other side of it, victorious, being like a pear, why a pear? Why it's right. so funny? <laughs> yeah, right. It's a so, valid question. Why'd you pick that fruit? And I <laughs> think that um, people need to, um, or at least for us, we need to look at. Um, the positive side mm -hmm. of things, even though it doesn't seem like there's any positive side to it. This has really opened us up to be closer as a couple, closer as a writing team, um, and closer as a family. And by the way, I would also say that people on social media that we don't know that, that follow us were incredible. Mm. So going through and just experience, obviously Jeannie's family and our friends were very supportive, but the outpouring of support on social media was, it, you know, it's so uh, heartwarming. Yeah, humanity the, you know, like gets the it. The good side of humanity. humanity because right now we're all yeah. we're all so caught up in this, you know, the division, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But when it comes down to human experience, we're all humans. Mm -hmm. No matter who you vote for or whatever, there was outpouring from everybody. Mm -hmm. And when- Even the bad people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so honestly, when you look at these like crisis situations in the world right now, it, cutting through it all, there's always somebody there that's helping. That's the situation. To help. If you look at every crisis situation, look at the helpers. Mm -hmm. Look at the people who are caregiving to the victims. Mm -hmm. And that is going to inspire your humanity. Because if you just look at the bad people, mm -hmm. you're going to feel really bad. Jeannie, that is the nicest thing. I've heard anybody say Truly. about Twitter all week. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it is nice to know humanity gets an A. Twitter, you're not all bad. Thank you so much, really Jim and Jeannie, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Noble Ape is in theaters and streaming through the Comedy Dynamics Network. Definitely go watch it. It's absolutely hilarious. Up next, we've got more M to Dim. <laughs> M to Dim. <laughs> M to Dim. No, his. You're Dim to him. Oh. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Emma Loop. Good morning, Emma. Good morning.
Here's a play in three acts from you, Emma. Today's glamorous hill workspace, a floor next to a garbage can. My buddy Pale and I, feeling cute, might delete later. Update, <laughs> tragedy strikes. A man has taken away my beloved Pale. I am devastated and would ask for privacy during this time. <laughs> Emma, we are truly sorry for your loss, but do you usually find yourself in that kind of workspace? Believe it or not, yes. Um, I'm often sitting on floors um, in, you know, kind of crowded hallways or dark hallways without any natural light. And so, unfortunately, yes, but sometimes I get a chair. Sometimes I've managed to find a chair. Do you know what happened to your beloved trash can? The people want to know. So just this man came with this big cart and took him away. And <laughs> honestly, I haven't been the same since. I mean, none of us have. It's, it's very tragic. Well, moving, moving right along, here's a tweet from Zoe Tillman. Maria Butina, the Russian graduate student and gun rights activist charged with being a Russian agent, will remain in custody after a judge found there were no release conditions that would ensure she would not flee. I cannot read enough about this chick. Emma, <laughs> what did we learn during Butina's appearance in court yesterday? So we learned based on this new court filing that they had concerns that she would flee the country because of her connections to Russian officials and also because when they raided her home, they found that there were boxes packed and that her lease was going to be up on her apartment. So they had real concerns about her fleeing back to Russia, though she might have been moving back to South Dakota where she was based with uh, with Paul Erickson, who is widely believed to be another person referenced in, in the indictment. And so uh, we've also learned that she likely had connections to uh, Russian intelligence, according to U.S. authorities. They found communications that suggested that she had close ties to, to Russian intelligence. Uh, she had met with a diplomat who they believe was actually a Russian spy here in uh, Washington, D.C. So quite the bombshell court filing in this case yesterday. So who is Paul Erickson? You just mentioned him. He is a key player in all of this, right? Yeah, so he's a long time kind of behind the scenes GOP operative, very involved in the NRA and uh, CPAC, which is the conservative, uh, conservative group here in the U.S. And he apparently, according to this court filing, was in a relationship with Maria Butina and, um, and they lived together. And so he is someone who is very, you know, very well connected and, and has contacts within the NRA, within the GOP, within the Republican establishment. Now, that's so interesting. Here is a tweet from Vera Bergengrun. How did alleged Russian agent Maria Butina make inroads with conservative, conservative groups for so many years? She learned how to speak their language. Guns, freedom, God, America. Emma, tell us a little about how Butina earned the trust of these conservative, conservative groups. So she would attend a lot of NRA events, a lot of conservative events, and she would introduce herself as a gun rights activist uh, from Russia, say that she wanted to, you know, bring freedom to Russia and, and loosen the gun laws there, which is a movement that doesn't have a ton of momentum in Russia. There doesn't seem to be much public appetite for loosening the very tight gun rules in, in Russia. But this is, of course, a narrative that would resonate very well with conservatives here in the U.S. The idea of bringing freedom and personal liberty to a country where 
where the, the gun laws are very, very restrictive. And so she would introduce herself, and she was also kind of the ultimate network uh, networker. She would, you know, suggest that they follow each other on Twitter and Facebook, you know, suggest different ways to connect with one another and to stay in touch. And so she would attend these events and, and come away with, with several contacts. How do you think she was able to get so high up and speak to so many people? I mean, obviously, if you read Vera's profile, which I definitely recommend, it was so interesting. She kind of had this tailor-made almost for the GOP backstory. So do you think that that's what helped propel her along, or are we going to find out more information about how she infiltrated them? So she, she definitely had this kind of perfectly manicured story, um, and that's certainly what the court documents suggest as well, that she was, she was uh, infiltrating these, these organizations and telling them a story that they wanted to hear. And also in the court filing, she apparently, according to U.S. authorities, offered sex to someone other than U.S. person one, who's widely believed to be Paul Erickson, in exchange for access to that political organization, which is not named. And so so just a, a very complicated story and one that has gotten a lot of attention from people in the last few days. It's definitely interesting and we're going to be paying a lot of attention to it. But moving along, here is a tweet from the New York Times. Two weeks before his inauguration, Trump was shown highly classified intelligence indicating that Putin had personally ordered cyber attacks to sway the election. He has since publicly questioned it. So Emma, just yesterday, Trump appeared to say that Russia wasn't interfering with the election again. And then Sarah Sanders walked it back again. So how does this story impact how we process Trump's kind of ever shifting views on this? So yes, yet another kind of walk back from this president, and it's something that a lot of people expected, and it's something that we got, you know, confusing messages about how he truly feels about Russia and what happened at this meeting and whatnot, which we still don't know a ton about. And so it's, it's, it's more confusion for the American people as to what actually happened and what the president feels. Um, but what is certain is that he was shown this evidence, uh, according to the New York Times, that shows that the, Putin personally directed these cyber attacks. And, you know, one person who was quoted in that story, someone uh, close to the president, said that the, one of the reasons Trump is so hesitant to embrace this intelligence and to be hard on Russia is because he worries that doing so would raise questions about the legitimacy of his presidency. And so he doesn't want to be seen to be doing anything that would raise questions about whether he is truly the person who is meant to be president or whether a foreign power interfered to help him get elected. Of course, the intelligence agencies and, and you know, the committees investigating this on, on Capitol Hill have all said that there is no evidence to suggest that votes themselves were tampered with. And so he could fall back on that. But it's, a, it's another complicated narrative from this president about where exactly he stands on Russia. Wow, interesting. So, Emma, there was a lot of debate over Trump's no comment yesterday. How should we be even interacting with these things? How we should we cover these things exactly? 
So that's a great question, and I think we need to, you know, call things out when they seem to contradict heaps of evidence. You know, his own intelligence chiefs, you know, whether it's the FBI director, the uh, director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, have said that the opposite is true, that, you know, the, the red lights are flashing, that Russia is going to try to and is likely already trying to interfere in the next election and to launch cyber attacks against the U.S. And so we need to put it in that important context of look at all of what, look at what the intelligence chiefs, you know, these people with a lot of credibility are saying and how it compares to what the president is saying. Yeah, for sure. Well, it definitely seems like this story is not going away. So we'll be following all of your updates. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Up next, in honor of Sierra's new music video, Chantal is taking a look back at her career. I'm excited for this. Me too. <laughs> Welcome back. Phoenix tweeted, bruh, Sierra is back and ain't coming to play with y'all. She's a veteran in the music game and she coming back around to smack us, us with silly with this comeback. And I'm excited for it. Same. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> Here to discuss Sierra's new video and her career evolution is Trey Green, market writer at BuzzFeed. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. How, How are, are you? you? I'm what? doing well. She's knocked me back too. Listen, okay, I said, what better person to talk to than you, Trey? You well, know I'm all about our pop queens, our army queens. So let's dig into it. Let's go. Let's so, go. Sierra's new video, Level Up, is out. Yes. What has the response been? When I tell you, I was up. When she dropped the video, I had to actually download an app to watch it, the exclusive premiere. Her, the C-Squad is hype. Okay. Because she has been out, she hasn't been out of the game, she's been visible, but her dancing, her actually giving us a new song, it's been a minute, and everybody's excited. Even people that aren't, you know, super loyal fans are just glad to see her dancing again because that's kind of what she leads with and what people love to see her do. Oh, that's so true. So there are so many iconic dance moments in this, you know, new video. So yes. what are some of Sierra's best dance moments in her career? Oh, Jesus. We, well, to start, you cannot think of Sierra without thinking of The Matrix. I would try to do it, okay. but okay. I'm not going to try to play myself today. Yeah, let's not do it. <laughs> um, but that is probably her signature go-to. She does it in multiple videos. She debuted it in 2004 with the Goodies video. And from there, that's one thing that people always think about when they think of Sierra dancing. Um, but beyond that, I think her music videos, she's had great live performances. Like I can think of Body Party. Mm. Um, she did a medley at the BET Awards 2013, and she killed that. Um, but her videos are kind of where, that's the best archive I've seen her dance. So, you know, work, um, goodies, one, two step, mm -hmm. which I love because, yes. uh, you know, I can't Listen. do the choreo as much as some other people. Mm -hmm. um, and then even, you know, lesser known kind of lost videos like Got Me Good, which she, the footwork was amazing in that video. And even Give Me That, yeah. where she, she danced, she popped, she locked, she did the matrix at the beginning. It was a great testament to all of the things that she can do as a dancer. Yeah, and speaking of goodies, what are some similarities between the differences and similarities between now and the goodies days? Let's see. Um, when I think of Sierra, the similarities are that confidence is still there. Mm -hmm. You know, she always has led and had this, it's just an allure. And she's just, she's gorgeous. Like you cannot deny that Sierra is one beautiful girl, our woman. Um, but outside of that, I'd say um, when it comes to the differences and the dancing too, mm -hmm. that is something that has been a constant in her career, as well as the fashions. 20, you know, 2004 when she first debuted, oh. Luckily, we have moved on from some of those yeah. styles, but even when she was, you know, they, uh, encouraging people to, you know, wear the crop top uh, hoodies and the oversized cargo shorts. Um, but now, you know, her style voice has evolved a little bit and people are matching that too. Even in the, um, 
even in her most latest video, people were so hype about how like amazing the fashions were in there. Um, and then as far as just the differences, I would say the subject matter. Mm -hmm. You know, now she's a mom, she's a wife. So what she's talking about in her songs are totally different than when she was a teenager or in her early 20s. Um, and then also the music itself has changed too. Mm -hmm. So she was kind of, she was crowned the, the what, princess of Crunk and B. Yes. Um, but we ain't nobody crunking anymore. We're still being mm -hmm. R&B or whatever, but crunk isn't as big, um, you know, the snap music. But it's been amazing to see all the different genres that she's also tried out in her career and made work for her. Yeah. So. You can't, you can't knock CC. You can't, you can't. Go CC, go CC, go. Yes, and speaking of growth and evolution, how in particular do you feel that she's grown as a woman? I, I will say that I love, honestly, her Instagram is where I just love to see her live because, you know, she married Russell Wilson in 2016. She's mother to what, Future Zaire, uh, Sienna Princess. So she has two kids. She's a wife. Um, she's very vocal about her faith. And it's amazing to see just in Instagram how happy she looks. So I think that, you know, we all go through our growing pains in our 20s. And um, now that she's, what, you know, in her 30s, it's amazing to see kind of how she's taking control of what she wants her career to be and what she wants us to see. And she's opening that up to her fans, too, so they can kind of learn from what she's learned from. Yeah, and just really bringing everyone in. Mm -hmm. So do you think Sierra's career is where you expected it to be? It, it Honestly, it is. Okay. I can think... You know, back in 2004 when goodies dropped and everybody was trying to do, you know, the dance around okay. and all of those things. <laughs> and there was just something about her. And then after that hit, she had hit after hit after hit, you know, iconic moments, moments like the promise video. Um, and even the way that she's been able to kind of move into other areas of entertainment and lifestyle. Uh, I, I've always felt like she's going to be around. She's going to be around for a while. I mean, it's 10 years, almost a decade now yes. that she's been out here. So And still looking. May she continue to evolve. Amazing. We love her. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Trey. Yeah, no problem. We truly appreciate you joining us today. Well, we're going to leave you with this tweet from Jerome Trammell. Sierra's Level Up is not just a catchy, fun dance song. She's encouraging you to be the best version of yourself. Be inspired and resilient. Strive for better. Get that dream job. Aim for healthy friendships and relationships. Learn from mistakes and catch these blessings. Amen. Up next, Stephanie sits down with the founder of Wild Thing. To lead, and I'm joined by Wild Fang co-founder and CEO Emma McElroy. Emma, thank you so much for coming on with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, guys. So Wild Fang, I think, is best known for those wild feminist t-shirts, which I believe you are wearing. It looks like it. <laughs> um, so you started, oh yeah, there we go. Awesome. So you started Wild Fang in 2013, but you've said in the past that the business was really impacted by the 2016 election. So what inspired you to start Wild Fang and how has it evolved in the years since Trump was elected? So Wild Fang started in actually the, the men's department at Urban Outfitters. It was me and my best friend and we were shopping for product. And uh, honestly, it seems like all the best stuff is in the men's section for some reason. I was looking for a really cool graphic tee and all the graphic tees in the women's section were like, floral and pink and had a scoopy neck and weren't cool um and then i find this really cool one with uh, a picture of kate moss and she was given a middle finger and she was just awesome uh, and it was in the men's section and so i was trying it on and the neck was really high and the hips were really tight and so i didn't buy it um and my best friend was with me and she was trying on a blazer um and it had like patches on the elbows and same conversation right there's never a good blazer in the women's section they like 
flick out at the bottom and do all this weird stuff. Um, and so she was like, hey, I bet there are other other women like us who want access to styles that have been reserved for men. And I was like, yeah, I bet you're right. Uh, so that was 20, that was actually 2010. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting old now on this one, but that was 2010. And then uh, we launched in 2013, launched as a website, started to add some stores. We now have three stores, two in Portland, one in New York. Um, and then, as you mentioned, um, the election kind of changed things for us, right? So um, our whole MO was to was to allow women to be their best selves, right? To, to leave them unrestricted. They could be whoever they want and they could wear whatever they want. And then the election happened and it felt a little bit like a kick in the stomach. <laughs> and like maybe the ideals that Wildfang stood for um, – didn't matter, right? Maybe they weren't relevant. Maybe maybe other people didn't agree with us um, because it felt like we just elected something that was so in opposition to our values. Um, and so at that moment, we kind of came together as a team and said, we need to use this platform to make a difference. Um, we need to use this platform to uh, support uh, the communities who need it most um, and who need a platform most and who are completely underrepresented. And so, yeah, 2016 was a pretty big shift for us. Yeah, for sure. So how do you think we need to change the way that we think about gender, gender identity and clothing as an expression of that? And what are you guys doing to make that change? Well, it's weird if you think about it. It really is weird that we like have decided, like, it's not like there's a, a Coke uh, based on your gender or a TV based on your gender. It, it's a little weird that we've decided that certain certain pieces of clothing are only allowed um, to exist for for a man or a woman, um, and I mean those gender binaries in and of themselves are completely, uh, I think, irrelevant these days, right? Um, so, I think uh, what you're seeing with Gen Z, who are, who are the group coming behind the millennials, is they're thinking about gender in a completely new way. Um, they're thinking about it as a spectrum. They identify all over the spectrum, um, and so what we're seeing is fashion changes with that, and also other things like the role in the family, uh, your career choices all the things that in your life have kind of historically been restricted by gender, um, I think Gen Z is starting to blow that up. And I think it's super important because what we've found at Wildfang is when you can't express yourself, you're massively held back. If, if you can't be who you want to be and who you want to uh, you know, identify as, um, you're, you're held back throughout your life. And fashion is a huge part of that. So for us, it's really about... Um, allowing um, individuals to have the choice to wear whichever styles they, they feel like best represent them. Um, and, and that also comes out, there's, there's other parts to that. Gender's a part of it. Uh, body diversity is also a part of that conversation. But just allowing people to identify however they want, express themselves however they want. Um, and honestly, they tend, to, uh, they tend to be braver, bolder, and more likely to hit their potential if you allow them to do that. For sure. So what is, say, if you can think of an example of one or maybe two types of clothing that you really saw were not being created for women or gender nonconforming individuals that you at Wildfang are trying to make more diverse and like open to a bigger set of body types? Yeah, of course. I mean, the obvious one is the suit, right? So uh, like I mentioned before, particularly blazers that resided in the women's section, um, they kind of flare out at the hips. They have no real details, right? No real pockets, no real buttons. They have those weird fake things that don't do anything. Um, they don't have any great craftsmanship. So uh, the seams tend to be uh, poorly done. 
Um, the pockets tend to be poorly done. They tend to not have a, a nice lining. Um, so we kind of stole all the best pieces that for some reason had only been allowed to, to, to stay in the boys' side of the, the department store, um, and we pulled them into our silhouettes. So, uh, for example, double-breasted blazer, um, that's something that we offer. That's really hard to find um, in most women's stores. Uh, a tuxedo blazer, um, really hard to find. Um, uh, a boyfriend blazer or a casual blazer, um, relaxed blazer that doesn't like accentuate your hips really hard to find and all of those silhouettes have real details so they have they have deep pockets they not those little ones you know those little ones where you just put your fingers in it doesn't make any sense not those those are dead go away fake pockets right they have real um they have real detailing in the buttons um real detailing in the lining so uh there are silhouettes but they're also just better made yeah for sure i mean i think we've all you know tried on, let's say like a men's suit for the first time or a suit jacket, you know, whatever. And been like, wait, I don't have this pocket to put like my wallet and my phone. This is so messed up. Um, pockets that are about this deep and do nothing. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 It's just for my, I don't know, chopstick and that's it. <laughs> you tweeted about two years ago, I made a mental note to myself that I was going to be really real in every interview at every event and on every platform. That might mean talking. What? Way to call me out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's a really great tweet. Uh, so, you know, we're a Twitter show. We like to incorporate people's social media. What made you decide to start getting real? Uh, man, I think it came after 2016. Um, I, I think a lot changed for me that year. And honestly, um, uh, my wife, Sarah, um, we were going to an event in Portland. Um, it was uh, a high school event, right? So I get asked, I'm really lucky I get asked to speak a lot. Uh, and honestly, this event I wasn't excited about. I'd had like a 14 hour day, I was exhausted. I hadn't prepped for it. I had to come home, I was prepping on my laptop and the event was the next day with like 150 high school kids. And typically in those audiences, half of the kids are on their phones, half of the kids are asleep. It, you know, it it's hard to hold attention. They didn't choose to be there. They've been told to be there. And so I was on my laptop and I said to Sarah, um, oh man, I, I don't want to do this. And I was complaining. And she said, hey, can I give you some advice? And I was like, oh, here we go. Hit me, you know? And she was like, um, for me growing up as a queer woman in Arizona, um, I didn't have a you to look up to. I didn't have a role model. Um, I didn't have anyone I could relate to. And so... I would encourage you to think about your audience tomorrow because if there's one kid like me in the audience, seeing you as a queer female immigrant CEO, like that might have changed my whole life. I, I might not have gone into the bar industry. I might have done something completely different because I knew I could be it. Um, and she goes, so, so when you talk to them tomorrow, I would encourage you to share a little bit more of yourself. I would uh, encourage you to like, just tell them who you really are because Forget the 95% who don't want to be there and are on their phone, but there might be like five kids in that audience that really, really need you. Um, and they really, really need to relate to you. And you might change their whole life. Um, and you're actually really privileged to get the platform that you get. And in that moment, I kind of realized I was a complete jerk and a really privileged jerk. And I realized that uh, as a CEO and as a CEO of Wildfang in particular, I, I do have a platform and I, I do have the opportunity to talk to people like you guys. And so it's super important that I, I break down as many of those stereotypes that I can. Um, for me, I, I do identify as queer. I do identify as a woman. I do identify as, as an immigrant. 
uh, if I can break down any of that stuff, um, it's super important um, that other people who come behind me um, and who look like me and who sound like me uh, get to come through the same door that I did, right? Because, you know, in startup, women don't receive funding um, and there aren't very many women CEOs full stop, right? Um, there certainly aren't very many queer CEOs, right? So you start to layer it all on um, and at the end of the day, you can't, you can't be what you can't see. So for me, it's about trying to relate to people I talk to and trying to kick a door down so that other people who look like me can come behind me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Speaking of, obviously, the election we've spoken about a little, uh, you, uh, your company, after the whole Melania, I really don't care, jacket thing came out, you launched a line of clothing that had the line, I really do care on it, with proceeds going to racist, which is the big uh, charity that people are donating for to help with the immigrant kids. So how do you feel your responsibility as a CEO of a company to respond to the news in this way? And what made you want to be so quick to respond to like a t cultural event? You know, that week was a really hard week. Uh, a lot of bad stuff um, was kind of flying across the news desk, right? So we were seeing kids in cages and, and just, I think, things that were pretty shocking to most of us as Americans. Um, and my, my team had had a really hard week uh, watching that stuff hit the news. And then when we saw the jacket go live, honestly, it just felt like insult to injury. Even if it was just a mistake, it, it just felt so tone deaf to the conversation. Um, and so we wanted to see how we could have a positive impact in that conversation. We wanted to see how we could bring something positive to that conversation. And so um, we happened to have a bunch of military jackets that we make. They're really great military jackets. And I just kind of said to the team, hey, what if, what if we take that statement and we make it positive? Because um, we really do care about this issue and we re really do care about um, immigrant rights. What if we create the positive version, but we just give away all the profits, just give them back to races and we can make a really positive impact in, in the overall um, uh, conversation. That team was super supportive. We threw it up online. We did not expect what happened. Um, you know, I can tell you the backstory, which is we threw up 100 units. That's all we had in our online inventory. We threw up 100 units. They sold out in 45 minutes, um, which meant like in 45 minutes, we'd raised $10,000 for races. Um, you know, then we threw up some, we found some more in our offline stores. We threw those in. Um, then we, we made a bomber because we ran out of military jackets. Long story short, you know, we were able to move over 6,000 units of that collection and raise uh, well over a quarter of a million dollars for races, which a company our size, like that's that's mind blowing for us to be able to raise a quarter of a million dollars for charity in, in you know, five days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Emma, thank you so much for joining us uh, and telling us a little bit more about your company. Well, thanks for having me guys. Have a good day. You too. Up next, we respond to your tweets, so don't go away. We did it, Chantal. We did not burn down the studio. We did it. Nothing bad happened. We still have jobs, I think. Yes, we I do. I think they're going to let us come back and do this tomorrow. Yeah, I think we should show up to see what yeah. happens. Yeah, <laughs> and thank you, obviously, to Isaacs and Saeed for doing that great interview with the Gaffigans. Mm, so good. Super, super great. CD Martinez had a reaction to the interview saying, from chronic pain to terminal illness, caretaking in younger families is becoming more common. 
happy for this show. Yeah, it was a really great interview. You know, I like, you know, they're going kind of from the spectrum to funny, just like kind of sad and hard. Also, I loved that the guys at the end of it together. I know, and I just love how the both of the Gapkins have each other to hold each other for support. It's really great to have that partner to walk that journey with. Yeah, for sure. It's what we all want, I think. So, moving on, after our Throwback Thursday honoring Sierra, Christian says, going to die of old age now because I realized goodies was 14 years ago. Yeah, yeah I feel like a dinosaur, honestly. 14 years ago? I know, you just told me that before we went on and I, I cannot believe that. I mean, but it makes sense, I think I was in high school when that came out and you just said, I think Sierra herself was only like 16 yeah, or 16 17, or 17 years old, which like, is crazy. I think my mom would have gotten kind of mad if I was singing about my goodies yeah. at 16. But. I was doing the dance too, like literally. <laughs> I, know, was like, I know, I know, I know. But you know, she's awesome. We love her, we love for her. sure. All right, well thank you to our guests, Jim and Jeannie Gavigan, Nicole Wen, Tasneem Nashrula, Emma Loop, Trey Green, and Emma McElroy for joining us. And we will see you tomorrow. Yay! Bye, guys. Bye.